Hello, hello, herzlich willkommen. Welcome to episode 6 of Grief Bacon, a conversation with my good friend um, and almost priest, Adam Wuchko. Um, this is a conversation that uh, we've had in various forms over the years. It's a topic that um, we tend to get on anytime we're, we have an opportunity to have a long conversation. Um, and it's about the spiritual path, our own um, American spirituality, spiritual materialism, um, the discomfort that we have in engaging with the institutional church, um, the ways in which it's difficult to translate um, ancient practices in a way that make them relevant for the concerns of the day, um, and uh, you know the mistaken notion that the spiritual path is about uh, success and feeling good and uh, bliss. <laughs> um, yeah, real bummer, huh? Anyway, um, I hope you enjoy the conversation. In the show notes, I've linked to some of the things that we reference in the conversation, but there is also a link to a book that I did not mention in the podcast called Revives My Soul Again, uh, The Spirituality of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I'm reading it right now. It's an excellent read. It's really relevant to this conversation. And uh, it's kind of a book that addresses the ways in which white liberals have kind of um, uh, secularized uh, MLK and uh, kind of ignore or put aside uh, the role that his faith played in his activism. Uh, it's a really good read and I highly recommend. And um, I think this is a conversation that anybody who, who you know, lives their life uh, with a view to the sacred, uh, whatever that means, whatever path you're on, whatever... Um, whatever, uh, however your, your spiritual life and journey has looked, we'll find interesting. At least I hope so anyway. So thanks for listening. So why don't you say who you are for the fine folks? So I'm Adam and I think I'm an old friend of yours. <laughs> One of my oldest. <laughs> yeah. Are you not sure about whether you're old or whether or not you're my friend? I'm just not sure who I am. <laughs> Do you have a last name? Uh, Bucko. Oh, I was going to say, please say it properly, though. Don't say it the way we horrible Americans say it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I could never get away with a statement like that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it really, I mean, I have many pet peeves. As you know, I'm a person of pet peeves. But one of my great pet peeves in life is how nobody just pronounces your name properly. Because well. bucko is like a funny thing that they say in westerns. It wouldn't. It wouldn't matter if they said it wrong. If it I didn't. know. Trust me. When I moved to this country, and I had to like finish high school, so I think I spent like a year and a half in high school. Teachers would pronounce my name, and they would be like bucko, and then just start laughing. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's silly. It's like I know, but, western. but then I would ask them like, "What does it mean?" I mean, I couldn't really speak English, but I would be like, "Is it a bad word?" And they would be like, "No, it's not a bad word, but it's, it's funny." It's not a bad word. It's like calling somebody like a kid or. Or, or I don't know. It's different though. But I mean, I, okay. I'm going to say your last name properly, as close to proper as I can. It's Buchko. Yeah, Buchko. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, good enough. You, you poles have all sorts of silent letters and bullshit that who who could pronounce it? But I think that's close enough. It's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. 
So you're Adam Buchko. Um, you're in New York. I am. Where you are indeed one of my oldest friends in the world. And I feel honored by that. <laughs> and my dearest, my nearest and dearest friends in the world as well. Not just, and I mean, you are, you are ancient in age as well, but, um, but you're also one of my, one of my longest, uh, longest friendships. And, um, and perhaps most notable about you at this point in your life is that you're about to be ordained a priest in a few weeks. Yeah. In a couple of weeks. Um, so the first thing I think would be important before we launch into our conversation is for you to, um, you're going to be ordained an Episcopalian priest. So there's plenty of people who won't Episcopal know. Priest. <laughs> I said Episcopalian. What's wrong with that? I think it should be Episcopal. Yeah, but Episcopals are Episcopalians. That's right. But We're already having our first argument. This is yeah, actually very good. What's the proper way of saying it? This is good and insight. This is good insight into our relationship. Um, yeah. You, you correct me, I fight back. Um, well, there are plenty of times when you correct me. Yeah, but the difference is that I'm always sure that I'm right when I correct you. <laughs> Thank you again for acknowledging that. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is I don't correct you unless I'm positive that I'm right. Mm -hmm. That's... No, this is, this is just a, a standard difference between men and women is men will correct somebody without knowing if they're right or wrong. Whereas a woman will make sure she's right before she goes through the, the process of beginning to correct someone. That's all I'm saying. Okay. But you are a newly graduated seminarian and you probably do know better than me. So you're about to be ordained an Episcopal priest. And I think you should just take a moment to different, explain what is an Episcopal? How is it not a Catholic? What is the difference between a Catholic priest and an Episcopal priest? Because most Protestants who are ordained do not call themselves priests. So just like, can you, can you say what that is? Well, so, uh, you know, Episcopal priest, meaning ordained in the Episcopal church, which is part of the worldwide Anglican communion, um, uh, which was kind of originated by the Church of England in the split that happened with the Roman Church. Um, I think the Anglican Communion and the Anglican Church, uh, in a way, is very unique. Uh, uh, it's the third largest um, church uh, within the Christian faith, so there is Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican. Um, and also Anglicans tend to... I mean, it's, you know, when you ask Anglicans, for example, whether you're Protestants or, or, or Catholics, uh, you will probably get uh, different answers from different people. And one of the reasons is that um, uh, the Anglican Church is essentially a compromise between Protestant and Catholic. Uh, and uh, we essentially think that there is room for people who are more on a Catholic side and more on a Protestant side to coexist with each other, uh, to have different theologies, but to agree to pray in the same way and to bring our differences uh, into our prayer and then through the Eucharist rediscover each other as members of the same body of Christ. So essentially, you know, that's, that's the church. 
in terms of differences between, let's say, Roman Catholics, as you know, you're, you're a Roman Catholic, I grew up Roman Catholic, is that, again, it depends, you know, within Anglicanism, you have people who are more on an Anglo-Catholic side, and when you talk to those, many of them will have an almost identical theology, and then you can also find, especially in England, um, churches that will seem very evangelical that are part of the Anglican communion. Uh, I think one big difference for uh, that, that people immediately notice in terms of priesthood is that Anglican priests are allowed to get married, uh, and also we um, we ordain women, so women are allowed to be priests, um, and also especially within um, within the Episcopal Church in the U.S., uh, openly LGBTQ people can also be ordained. Yes. And we affirm same-sex marriage and celebrate it. Yeah. So those are some really huge key differences between the Episcopal and the, and the Catholic Church. Um, I think it's just important to name those because the experience of an Episcopal Mass is nearly identical to a Catholic Mass, uh, unlike other um, Protestant you know, like if you go to a service in a Lutheran church or a Methodist church, it doesn't feel anything like mass, but, but actually Episcopals do celebrate mass and very similar ritual. Yeah, and, and, you know, especially I think it's important to acknowledge that especially during the papacy of John Paul II, uh, my fellow Polish countryman, um, who now uh, is considered a saint within the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, what, was, what was Pope John Paul's name before he was Pope John Paul? Karol Wojtyła. There, see, I was just trying to make you say the impossible yeah. Polish name. Yeah. Go ahead. But, you know, there, there were conversations and, and, and apparently many people believe that uh, the Church of England and, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church were very close to actually making an agreement um, uh, to essentially, um, you know, rejoin, so to speak. But then... Uh, the Church of England decided that they will ordain women, and that was basically the end of that conversation. And I think that it's very important to acknowledge that. And so then later on, Pope Benedict uh, offered an option uh, to some of the more conservative Anglo-Catholic Anglicans that if they don't agree with women's ordination and etc., they can move over um, and uh, become Roman Catholic priests. What's interesting about it, since you mentioned the liturgy, uh, just recently I looked at the liturgy uh, for those parishes who decided to move over um, uh, into the Roman Catholic Church, you know, some of those formerly Anglican parishes. Um, and a lot of the Anglican liturgical tradition was essentially uh, absorbed uh, by them and, and Rome uh, approved it. Uh, so, so in many ways, even the little differences that we have, um, you know, in the mass between Anglican and, and, and Catholic, now some of those differences actually were absorbed into the Roman church, into those parishes that continue their Anglican tradition, but are, um, uh, you know, officially part of the Roman Catholic church. Right. Okay. Um, so people who know you, well, let me, let me get back to this. So a few months ago or whenever it was that you actually were 
um, ordained as a deacon. That was how many months ago now? Uh, it was in January. In so January. A few months yeah. ago. Okay, so a few months ago. So something that, so for people who don't know you, you know, you, you are a well-known figure in like the interspiritual world. You worked for a lot of years in that milieu uh, before you decided to answer the call to priesthood. And, um, you know, you've been a, a voice against oppression, against, um, well, oppression in all its forms. You worked for years with homeless LGBTQ youth, um, homeless, oh, I already said homeless. Um, and, you know, like you're, you're known as a, as a very um, progressive and non-conforming, non um, not anti-establishment, but certainly like establishment questioning person. You know, you've written two books on the new monasticism with, we've co-authored two books on the new monasticism. So like the people who've become familiar with your work over the last decade plus probably have a very specific image of you. And then I remember when you were, um, when you were ordained into the, into the di diaconate, did I say that right? Yeah. Into the diaconate. Um, like it was interesting seeing some of the comments, the people who don't know you, but who knew, who knew who you were, you know, who've read your work, who are familiar with who you are kind of like struggling to, 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 um, to connect the dots. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, how is this guy now becoming a priest? Like what? And, uh, you know, as someone who's one of your dear friends and who's really um, had the privilege of kind of witnessing this whole, you know, well, witnessing basically the last, you know, 13 plus years of your spiritual evolution. You know, for me, it wasn't surprising at all. But, but I, I do have so, like compassion for people who've only read your books or only know of you by reputation or who have seen you speak at a conference. Um, you know, who then see you in robes, you know, with a bishop being ordained into the church. Like I can imagine for them, they're kind of like, what, how is, what is this? So I guess I'm curious, like, I don't, I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean for you to explain your whole internal process, but I guess like, how do you, um, not for yourself, because I know how you've made sense of it for yourself, but how do you imagine making sense of that for other people who can't see the connection between um, someone who's been, you know, involved in, in engaged contemplative spirituality that is interspiritual for many years, now finding a home in, you know, an established, you know, hierarchical church, basically. Yeah, I think uh, I've definitely heard from a few people who were um, just curious about what happened. Uh, you know, I remember when uh, one of the reviews uh, that, that came out of the first book that I wrote, Occupy Spirituality, uh, someone had called me in that review a recovering anarchist. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, I think that the way that, uh, for, first of all, if you, I think if you were to read what I've written and what I've said over the years, um, knowing that this is going to be the outcome, uh, I don't know that, that you would be that surprised. Because, uh, you know, I've always talked about some of my heroes, which were you know, essentially most of them were priests or 
uh, or people who were kind of actually deeply immersed in the church. For me personally, I felt that I was called to work outside of the church for many years. And one of the reasons for that was that I, I felt that I was called to serve homeless kids, and many of those homeless kids were essentially heard by the church, uh, primarily because many of them identified as LGBT. And I mean, over the years, I've met so many kids who ended up on the street because of their sexual orientation, where they're usually very devout Christian parents, um, you know, kick them out thinking that uh, whatever they were doing with their lives, that that was a sin and that it's unacceptable to be, to be gay and that being gay is something that you decide and et cetera. And of course, that's not true. And so I felt that, you know, in my first phase of my life, I felt that it was important for me to stand outside of the church and to translate what I've received from my mentors, many of whom were actually Christian monastics and also priests, um, and to help those people who are searching for meaning outside of the church to, to encounter God, essentially, and then to translate some of those practices that I've received um, and to help them stay connected to that experience of God um, and, 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 and to that uh, you know, presence that, that they have experienced in their lives. Uh, at some point, I think, as uh, I worked in an interspiritual uh, kind of community, so to speak, I started realizing that something was, was missing in that work, that it's possible to, uh, to empower people to, 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 experience God and to offer them spiritual direction and, and, and practices that can kind of help them to stay connected to that. But a lot of that spirituality, as I've watched over the years, um, was also turning to be very individualistic. Um, and, you know, some years ago, I myself had this experience of the Eucharist that happened in an Anglican context that really surprised me. Prior to that point, my spirituality was about contemplative practice and even some of my Catholic and Anglican and monastic and, and, and you know, mentors and priests never really encouraged me to worry too much about, uh, about uh, the, the kind of participating in the sacramental life of the church. I was just told, just keep on praying, you know, keep on serving. This is your church. This is where you meet God. And it's true. But, but, but some years ago, um, what I felt kind of almost happened by accident, I was invited to this community and experienced the Eucharist in a completely new way. And from then on, I knew that that had to be an essential part of my spirituality. Um, and that old calling to, 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 to priesthood just kind of reemerged, you know, something that I feel like I've carried in my heart as this kind of little secret, so to speak, all my life, really, since, since I was a child. Um, and, and so that's how I ended up in the church. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of my work still probably is going to be about supporting people who, 
who stand outside of the church and that's and that's fine but now i feel i can also be a bridge who can help people to uh, encounter the riches of the christian tradition in a new way um i don't know if that answers your question no i think it does i mean i i again you know i mean maybe it's a little bit difficult for me because as i said i've i've been right alongside you for much of this journey so um it's you know, uh, yeah, sorry for cutting you but but you know like even when i was like on the road and you know when when the books came out and i was traveling a lot and i would speak in all kinds of places i mean buddhist conferences and even whenever i i mean i almost never identified publicly uh, as a christian because i was very conscious that you know my role is to show up and to speak from the heart from my experience of god without necessarily even naming it because for some people that might be a barrier but almost always you know i would be identified as a christian so i think that i mean my spirituality you know coming from poland has always been rooted in that experience of 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 christ and and, and church has always been you know kind of in the in the background of that but um, but I think for people who just read, you know, the materials, maybe sometimes it's difficult for them to, to understand that. Yeah, well, and I also think that there's a very specific way that um, people engage with topics of spirituality right now, and then also the way that they engage with teachers and writers, meaning that, um, you know, people often have a very powerful experience of, of reading something and it names something that they have really been struggling to name, right? And so they, there's this like immense sense of relief, like, oh my God, this person understands me. This person has named something that I haven't been able to quite put into these words. And then there's this sense of kinship and this sense of belonging that maybe they've really struggled to feel. And then I think it's very easy in our, like just the way that the world works these days, to kind of project whatever you want then onto that person in their teachings and um, and you know people who are out to be successful or popular or to be getting a lot of speaking engagements or to sell books you know they do want to be careful about what they say that's never been you but I'm just saying that yeah. Yeah. you know there is just a very particular way that spiritual people and I'm, I'm, I'm making air quotes that nobody can see or like teachers again I'm making air quotes like have to engage if they want to be relevant and listen to and successful in that. And again, like you have never been jockeying for that. You've always actually had your work with the foundation, but you were writing books in, in the meantime and, you know, speaking a lot and really running yourself ragged. Um, if I'm being honest, which I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, people, I think, uh, one of your one of your great gifts is that you are so like when you're when you're there you're just like so present and you also are so piercing like you kind of get to the heart of what a person is expressing really quickly and so i think um you know it'd probably be, be very easy even for people who you know saw you speak so maybe they didn't only read your work but they also saw you speak to really feel like you understood something profound about them and then kind of make assumptions about how much of their wounding around the church you also had, or, you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, yeah. it's very difficult. 
um, I, the, my, the last episode of the podcast, you know, my brother and I in passing had a very slight disagreement. I mean, not slight, it's a huge disagreement we have, but we didn't really get into it mm-hmm. in that part of the conversation about like, he, you know, he thinks that Christianity is irrelevant and useless and that no church anywhere is that religion is, is useless. Organized religion is useless. And of course, like, I mm-hmm. don't agree. But I also think like a lot of people who've been deeply wounded by the church, absolutely 100% feel that way with mm-hmm. reason. But if a person has like a, a different perspective, I think they could look at your work through the years. They could look at everything you've ever said, everything you've ever written, and obviously follow the thread right to where you are right now. Yeah. Um, but I think what could be difficult for people to make sense of and, and, Again, because I've had a front row seat, I don't struggle with this, but I can imagine if I didn't know you as well as I did. Like you're a person who is, has, is very aware of, of structures of oppression. You're, you're well-versed in white supremacy and patriarchy. And I mean, you're, you're, you're very um, aware and, and um, not only educated, but like have some pretty direct experience and really understand your place in the world and how that affects the rest of the world. And so I think like there's partially the the theology of it that's confusing, but then I think another part of things that people are reacting to is like you're choosing to join a hierarchical institution. I mean, obviously the Episcopal Church is not the Catholic Church, right? Like women and gay people are not only recognized but celebrated. But, you know, it's still it's still, you know, yeah, pretty white. Although I forgot to say early on, like people who who are who don't know their episcopals from their methodists the most i think the most famous episcopal is bishop curry who who married uh megan and and uh prince harry so just for people to have a picture in their head of like who's the presiding bishop uh, of uh, of the episcopal church in the united states and you know we also have uh, archbishop desmond tutu oh uh, right of course yeah uh, who's a real I mean, hero for, for human rights. And for, yeah. But people, yeah. I don't think people associate uh, Desmond Tutu with, Episc- with being an Episcopalian, Episcopal. Yeah, I mean, he's Anglican. You know? Yeah, right. But it, I, again, I don't know that people make that connection. So I yeah. just think that, yeah. you know, for a lot of people who don't understand, and, and that's the other thing is that, you know, that's a word that's only really used in the U.S. Everywhere else yeah. it's the Anglican Church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think that this is... And, you know, I, I also obviously have a lot of friends who are in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and, and I have a deep love for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, my parents are practicing Catholics. I grew up Roman Catholic. I mean, you are Roman Catholic. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, sometimes it's just very difficult to, uh, for, for people to understand how could someone who affirms a lot of progressive values and who tries to the best of their ability to stand on the right side of history, so to speak, how can they uh, be in the church? Um, And, you know, in my case, uh, I just felt like God called me to be in the church and it wasn't really a rational decision. Uh, I don't have any illusions about the church uh, yes, the church has a huge shadow, but also there are gifts within it that uh, I just couldn't live without. Yeah. You know? 
I and think I think that's... you probably feel the same way because you know we could sit here and 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 try to justify why we are in the church, but I think in both of our lives actually something happened and life outside of the church just didn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I, I'm asked to justify my own participation in church life. I mean, it's different. Obviously, I, you know, I'm not about to become a priest. I, I'm not a person who holds any power in the church, but obviously I'm also, you know, I, I do choose to participate in, in the life of the church. And yeah, people ask me, how, how can I, how can I do that? I mean, certainly with the Catholic church, which is, you know, fairly evil in many respects, you know, like there's been some real evil done uh, in, in, in the, in the Catholic church that has not been accounted for or, or repaired in any way, shape or form. And so, uh, but yeah, there's, there's, I can't, there's nothing I could say that could justify it. And actually I don't make any attempts to justify it. Um, I will say that like, that there's, there's part of something that's, unnameable that has that is again is not logical that is that is nothing to do with um choice in a way that is that is a, that is a difficult conversation to have with someone who, who doesn't have the language or the experience to explain it mm-hmm. but then there are really logical choices like for me at this time in history given not only my ancestral history but the history of the world like you know i'm someone as are you who who you know, went through my years of, of studying Eastern philosophy and, you know, I was a very dedicated yogi for many years. And, you know, like I, I tried to do the thing that white people do, which is ignore their own busted institutions and then try to colonize others because they make more sense. But, you know, it took me going, delving very deeply into yogic philosophy to suddenly realize that like the thing that I was experiencing there, the, was actually um, part of the mystical tradition of the church, uh, or, you know, had its, had its parallel, had its, had a, had its, had its, um, parallel practice in the church, in the Western world, where I'm from, where my family is from, that has a context that actually includes me. You know, like I, I'm thinking right now about what's happening in India with Kashmir and, you know, uh, you know, Modi, who is, you know, many call a fascist, who is basically trying to, according to many, you know, turn turn India into a pretty conservative Hindu state and exterminate mm-hmm. all Muslims and um, and is using yoga because of its popularity in the West to like, um, he's using it as a, as a weapon, really. Um, you know, many, many people in the West don't realize that like International Yoga Day was started by like, you know, Hindu extremists. Uh, who are attempt who are you know Modi supporters, and so like it's very easy when you're when you're when you're in the West to look at Buddhism or 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 Hinduism or any Eastern philosophy and just take what you like and ignore what doesn't impact you and that you actually can very you can go your whole life not having any clue about, and you know go on and live your happy life. And I think obviously many people make that choice, but for me. I felt that any genuine spiritual journey had to include the shadow. And so if I, you know, because I don't live in India, because I'm not uh, South Asian, because I'm not, I, I, there's, there's certain things that I will never understand. There's a context that I will never fit in and that I will never know and understand. Then I really need to make sure that 
you know, I'm in my own context. And the fact is I'm a Westerner. The Christian church is a Western um, uh, institution. And, uh, and if I want to, and, and it has practices and it has traditions that can bring me into a deep, um, um, uh, can bring me into direct contact with God. And when I'm in it there, I'm also going to have to face the shadow of it because I can't ignore it because I understand it and I have to face it and I have to confront it and I have to struggle with it in a way that I just don't have to with Eastern traditions. Yeah. And I think for me, I had a similar experience in a sense to yours. You know, I went to a kind of ecumenical Hindu ashram or a monastery when I was 20 and, you know, I grew up Catholic and etc. But in that, uh, in that ashram, uh, that's when I kind of rediscovered Christianity because Hindu monks told me like all of this stuff is present in your tradition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took some time to re-engage with it and to find it. The difficulty is that things like contemplative prayer, even though they're more available than they used to, still it's possible to go to many churches on Sunday and never hear about any of that. Um, and I think that's a tragedy. You know, I hope that that will change. But I think you're absolutely right in terms of uh, participating in, in this tradition and reclaiming it. I remember a few years ago, um, I was invited to be part of an interfaith delegation of contemplative leaders during the climate talks uh, in Paris. And I remember one day I spent a lot of time with uh, one of my friends who's, who's a Native American elder and, and, and teacher, and he was sharing with me uh, what he sees in the West, you know, how many people, especially in America, are adopting Native American practices. And he wasn't very happy about that, you know, because he essentially said, look, um, you know, my tradition can be very helpful, uh, but people need to re-enter uh, their traditions, their cultural contexts, uh, because that will also enable them to fix, uh, you know, all the stuff that needs to be fixed. If they just leave it behind, it just stays there unchanged. Um, and I think that was a very interesting point, you know. Uh, part of us being in the church is also uh, hopefully you know, listening to God and asking for guidance and also uh, trying to fix all of those things that are present in our churches that violate God's love and justice, right? Yeah, well, and they have to be faced. And the reality is, I mean, I was at Mass this morning looking around and I thought, you know, there's a lot of people who are really old here. (laughs) Not to say that old people don't, don't think about these things, but I just mean there's a lot of old people here who've probably invested a lot of their time and energy into this church who are just not going to have the capacity to peep under the rug, so to speak, you know, and it's going to be too painful and too difficult for them. And if I'm someone who has the capacity to like face the hideousness as well as the beauty to like, to, to face how the church has perpetuated violence and also, um, allow the beauty where it exists like that has to create a shift over time and I don't think it's just you know I I really believe that I mean it's difficult to explain to people that I think one way that I use my privilege in the world is to insist that you know an institution that I'm part of that has done a great deal of harm 
mm-hmm. faces it, but also like, you know, that is, that is our job. I mean, I think this is an interesting conversation happening right now while like the Amazon is burning. I'm seeing more and more people talking about how like climate change and what's happening to the environment is, is directly related to white supremacy. And until we face white supremacy, until we face the ways that white people continue to just consume the world and, t- and, and I'm saying white, but it's all, I mean, any, any colonial power, right? Like yeah. just takes what they want without damn the consequences like it's going to continue. So I think there's, there's, it's so easy right now for people who are privileged to under the guise of like spirituality to basically turn their, their back on their responsibility to like, uh, unfortunately, like we've inherited a mess and we are the ones who have the influence and the power to, to deconstruct it and to reconstruct it. But yeah. it's, but if, and if we just walk away, if we just abandon these institutions and some of them do need to be abandoned. Yeah. Some of them do. Absolutely. But if we, but if we abandon uh, them completely, there are plenty of the old guard who will just keep them going until they die. And so I think like abandoning them, actually, the, every, the people have been saying the church was dying my whole life. Uh, people have been saying the church has been dying for the last 80 years, but guess what? The church is still going and it is, it is changing. It's struggling. But I mean, like there is immense, it's like power has a, has um like force, you know, like uh, what's that, what's the rule? A thing in motion has force behind it because it's already in motion. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah, yeah. this can perpetuate itself for a very long time. And, and so there needs to be people, there need to be people who are engaged, who are interested in, in reclaiming what's sacred, naming and, and seeing and, and uh, you know, what's, what's, not sacred and and i think that also it's important to acknowledge you know like in the church there's still the holy spirit is is still working and sometimes i feel stronger than ever you've experienced it i've experienced it and uh, you know like there's no reason why people shouldn't have access to that right yeah I mean, it is difficult in a world where, you know, I mean, I, I never identify as Christian. I would never, I would never use that word to describe myself because of the connotations that it has. Meaning I would only ever use that word if I were in a room where I knew people understood what I meant, mm. but you know, like I would never say that casually. Uh, and I, you know, and with, I think within good, with good reason, I mean, quote unquote Christians, certainly in America, you know, yeah, uh, are are it's it's a terrifying group to be lumped into, but but um, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of um. Oh, that's I was going to say this earlier when you were kind of talking about your heroes and your mentors and how oh you were saying that even among people that you knew who who were who were mentors to you who were in the church there was never any pressure for you to to be a part of the institutional church, and I think something that people don't understand like you and I have you know, mutual acquaintances and or mentors or elders who are, you know, religious, who are nuns or monks or priests. Mm-hmm. And we have had like the immense privilege of spending time with them both in practice, but also just as people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people who will never have a conversation in their whole lives with a nun that like wasn't their mm-hmm. teacher in a Catholic school or something, you know, like I'm mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, Mother Tessa, like, mm-hmm. There's many people who will never understand um, that 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 people who 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 uh, 
choose to live their lives in this way are not like quote unquote Jesus freaks, <laughs> you know, like they're not yeah. people who have just yeah. turned a blind eye to the world. They're not people who, who don't struggle with all the regular things that humans struggle with. Like they're not there and they're not people who are sitting in their habits, you know, judging the world for not living their lives the way they do, or, you know, who are obsessed with sin or, you know, like there's just. No, I mean, I just think of like, you know, I always, I recently had a conversation with Tessa and uh, we talked about different practices uh, that people used to practice in, in their community. And, you know, I, I heard it somewhere, I think, during one of her talks or audio programs that, uh, that she has, that like the question that she asks herself every, every night, which is kind of like the question for her daily examine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is like supposed to be your examination of conscience. Um, is have I been wild enough today? Yes. Um, and, and, and I mean, I love that because I think that that's, you know, have I been filled with God's love enough, right? Have I been filled with aliveness enough? Um, I, I mean, I think that you and I have seen that some of these people that, that we know uh, are some of the most amazing, most alive, most radical human beings. That's the point. And, and 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 you know, for me, that's actually what what is a kind of convincing thing about the church. You know, when I look at people that I really deeply am inspired by throughout history, I think of Oscar Ramirez. I think of the Polish priests who were killed. You know, during the Solidarity Movement in Poland. Uh, I think of Mother Teresa's. Uh, I think of some of the contemporary people that we know. I think of Teresa of Avila. Uh, and it's like, I think of Martin Luther King. I mean, those are the people that deeply move me. So I want to hang out with them to hopefully pick some of that up from them, you know? Yeah. And and obviously they were getting, they, those people, like the people that we know a lot, you know, who are alive today, who are, as you say, some of the most alive, radical open-minded, open-hearted, fully living. Like think of all the superlatives that people use as hashtags on Instagram with their carefully yeah. curated pictures about their spiritual life. And like these people are embodying that so fully that it, that it, that it, it lays bare just how empty it so often is when it's sold to you in some other context. Mm -hmm. um, or I think about, or, like there there's there's obviously something that the institutional church which whichever it is i mean you know whatever faith it is is providing that is that is giving them a connection that's 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 allowing them to live fully this really bold um expression of 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 god however they name it you know yeah. and so i think I think that can't be denied, but it is very difficult to see and understand if you a haven't experienced it yourself, or b are kind of consuming uh, "quote unquote" spirituality today. And it's so hard not to just be a consumer of spirituality because we don't even realize when we're being marketed to. You know, like you have to yeah, be so. I, I, I mean, look, and this is like sometimes I, I, you know, like I, I had the privilege of meeting quite a few people who like read some of my books and, and were moved by it. And it's always humbling experience to hear that, that, you know, an experience I wrote about or an experience that I had 
had had a positive impact on, on someone's life. But I've also met people who like took some of the, those ideas and turned them into something that I would definitely have difficulties with, you know, yeah. uh, uh, approving of. And, and, and I think that that's the thing. We are accustomed in our popular culture. You know, we replace the idea of God with an idea of feeling good, being happy, uh, you know, um, and, and, and we turn spiritual teachers and people who, who write books about spirituality into, uh, into essentially celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and so it's easy to kind of be in that world and, uh, and I don't know, almost get lost in that world, you know? Well, yeah, because it's, it's a self-perpetuating machine that kind of eats people yeah. up and spits them out. And the problem is that once you have any success, once anybody listens to you, I mean, um, the moment someone says you have something really interesting to say, like you almost have to be, you have to have the awareness, you have to have people around you who are going to support you saying like, wait a second, is this true? <laughs> because, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, there's just this really interesting article in the um the latest issue of vanity fair i think well it's either the august or the september issue i'm not sure because they they come here late to me but um and it's about this woman who people probably know whose name i can't remember who's like an instagram influencer she's an american and she's she was like the co-founder of this company you wouldn't know because you don't have kids it's called baby chino and then she and her husband and their five perfect children or maybe the other baby was born there but they all moved to byron bay australia which is like a surfer's paradise. And she lives there with a bunch of other people who are all like surfing moms who are living like the quote unquote slow life. And, you know, mm -hmm. all their kids are plastic free and don't watch screens and all the pictures and they're like various shades of pastel. And they're all wearing perfect linen. And it's this like hippy dippy quote unquote town. But of course, like all of her posts on Instagram are, you know, she makes money by doing the sponsored post on Instagram and kind of selling this idea that her lifestyle is not only like uh, slow and like authentic, but also achievable and attainable. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that having five children who are all dressed in clothing that is, you know, a hundred dollars or more a piece. And yeah. That must a, be pretty expensive. Yeah. And, and uh, surfing every day and, uh, your husband only working nine to five and you know I mean like it turns out of course she's like inherited a ton of money and her husband is paid very well and she makes a ton of money on Instagram by selling a life that is just not um, and, and, and who that she insists is 100% achievable but of course yeah if you're white and inherited a lot of money maybe but this is not yeah. achievable for most people but you know it was it's interesting profile that wasn't snarky but it was just kind of acknowledging how this is a person who really believes that she is living an authentic life and simply sharing it with the world and is kind of oblivious to how she's engaging with capitalism and consumerism and all of the oppression that goes along with that. And, but she is really, if, if she does have that fear, it is deeply buried. And, you know, reading the article, of course, it's about like lifestyle bloggers, but because of the world, when I move in, all I could think was like, oh, just you could make this, just insert any popular yoga teacher on Instagram here and you could have the exact same story, you know, like, yeah. 
there's there's this and and it's not just yoga i mean there's also i think about um even people who love like uh people who i would consider to be very authentic teachers like richard Rohr. you know like there's there's a lot of the ways that people talk about him and his teachings on social media or people who kind of feel inspired by him and then create these things that that really seem more based on on consuming ideas and and um, doing what we always do in a capitalist society, which is, you know, take something that seems like it's going to solve a problem, and then when it doesn't solve the problem we thought it was going to solve, discarding it and then looking for something else to to solve the problem, mm-hmm. and and that that has passed for quote unquote the spiritual journey for the last you know. Well, I'll say, I mean, I think a good chunk, maybe since the seventies, right? Like that has, that yeah. somebody can do that. They can consume, discard, consume, discard, consume, discard. And that can be labeled a spiritual journey. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's the thing that, that makes choosing to be part of a tradition very difficult because that won't, you won't get, get away with that for too long, <laughs> you know? Yeah in a tradition like you'll have to face the noonday demons and the boredom and the frustration and the not getting anywhere because you can't just discard well i mean you have to accept first of all that spirituality is not just like some kind of a self-improvement project it's not really about feeling good spirituality authentic spirituality is about dying to self and re-emerging out of that as a transformed human being and that it's work in progress and it's not something you can achieve in like one weekend retreat in 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 bahamas or or costa rica right yeah such a bummer (laughs) (laughs) well but you know It's also kind of exciting, you know, it's also kind of exciting because Uh, that means that, that every single day we get to start anew and that we have to learn how to be kind to each other because, uh, you know, like the stuff that is irritating me and you most likely I have that that, that same stuff. Um, so, 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 so in a sense, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, I think what's difficult is that the people don't don't know that like the core teaching of Christianity is that like you were made by love for the purpose of love by love, you know, like that's not something I mean, I'm I'm quoting St. Ignatius there, but that's but that is the core teaching of Christianity that you are you are completely loved and your job is to love and to empty yourself of self and to love until and just to accept and to receive the love that is your birthright but you know this is this is that's such an easy thing to say but um but that and that's also though not at all what most people if you ask what the what is the core teaching of christianity i mean you would have a large swath of quote-unquote christians in the u.s anyway that it would say it's like believing in jesus your lord and savior or you know you know what i mean like it would be yeah yeah and i think the churches are not really uh, doing a good job helping people to encounter that god of love and 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 helping them to uh, essentially learn how to be open to that love yeah. uh, so that love can penetrate them and transfigure them um into a new kind of being 
unfortunately, our churches, I think, maybe forgot how to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's something I wonder about is like that it's a chicken and an egg argument. Like, is part how much you know the church and society are always influencing each other and i think people want to believe that the church has had less influence on society than it has but i don't think that's entirely true but i also think like one of the reasons the church has has allowed like pure evil into it is because it has allowed itself to be deeply influenced by culture in a way that obviously goes against um you know the radical the radical teachings of of this person we call Jesus. So yeah. like this, um, I think about how much of the emphasis on like sin and um, this obsession over being right, uh, because that's, that's also like pure patriarchy, you know? So yeah. I think, I think how much did the church allow itself to be influenced by by patriarchy, but you also can't talk about patriarchy without talking about the way that the church, you know, upheld and reinforced and, and propagated it either. So it's like this very interesting symbiotic relationship. Um, and, you know, and I think in a way, like in, in a culture that is very, I, I'm talking about American Christianity right now, which is really its own brand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, there's, there's, there's the market demands, um, you know, the market demands a quick answer and a solution and uh, a black and white answer and something that's going to be easy and not take up too much of my heart or my head. And uh, that will help me feel superior. That will give me the moral high ground that will help me be self-righteous. And, you know, I think the church delivers. I think the church knows if it wants to stay relevant in some places, it's going to have to deliver self-righteousness um, <laughs> yeah. um, ease and and I, I don't think that churches are are sitting there thinking like let's give the people what they want but I, but I do think if you're not so hyper vigilant you will you will accidentally fall into the trap of of consumerism and capitalism in any yeah part of but you know I think that also churches are very aware of uh, uh, you know declining numbers uh, they're very aware that young people are not that interested in church anymore. And so I think that there's extra pressure to, to become relevant, which, you know, and, uh, and again, this is what Henry Nouwen, whom I think we both like, mm -hmm. um, said that, you know, like the temptation to be relevant, like relevancy, that's like one of the sure things to kill your ministry. Yeah, and I think the ways that churches respond to this, like when they talk about how they need young people, it's like they're talking about like like they're leeches who need blood. You know, <laughs> like there's just it's not. I don't hear but them I talking think it, about. But but if you like really listen to the logic behind it, I mean, on some level, I think that that's actually what they really mean, right? Which part that they're leeches? Like the, blood? yeah, that you know, like no, that just like. We're not actually interested in like engaging with young people. We're not really interested in 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 listening to them. We just need to do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to bring them in, uh, so we can survive. Hopefully, without changing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's. I think this is a generation. I think this is an issue with the older generation. Period. 
that there's this desire to engage young people for the purpose of setting them straight, not for the purpose of like being not, not because the generation is willing to listen and, and, and is willing to be changed by what they hear, but because they, it's almost like it's a bait and switch. Like, let me get you in here make you feel like I care and then convince you to see things my way. I think that happens in across the board, not just in religions. And so, no, I, I don't think that there's a genuine interest. I think you're exactly right. I think it's, it's a desire to be relevant, which of course is also um, very contrary to the radical message of Jesus. So relevance was never, was never um, on the table. And so I think that um, there's that. I was in the same Vanity Fair issue, or now maybe it was the August one. I don't know. I read the August and the September yesterday in the same issue. Great to know that you read Vanity Fair. It's really good, especially since Trump. Have you read it? It's like that's some of the best journalism, certainly on Trump. Um, But there was, and and this article that I almost uh, sent to you, and I probably still will send to you, was about like these super hip megachurches that are all over Los Angeles. And it was about like, mm-hmm. you know, like Yeezy or whatever name Kanye is going by now doing these like Sunday services and how there's like these, that Zoe church or whatever it's called. There's these, these like super hip um, churches popping up all over Los Angeles uh, where like stars and, and, you know, the cool kids are going and the article I think was just kind of curious about what it is. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the writer is a, an avowed atheist who just like kind of wanted to figure out what are these people feeling? At the end of the article, they concluded that like they're, what these people are desperate for is like some sort of like sense of connection, like genuine human connection. And this is where they find it. Like even the author feels it at the end, but it's because like someone actually touches the person. I don't remember was a man. I don't remember the gender of the person writing the article. Or mm-hmm. So uh, you know, they they they're touched by the pastor physically, like on the shoulder, and they have this mm-hmm. like moment of feeling connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but like reading the article, it doesn't delve deep. But it's like this person came and they had this little Bible study at the house and it grew and grew and grew until they were selling out, you know, 20,000 seat places. And then they had to keep going. And of course they, they do it at like nightclubs and these venues that are not churches. And the guys are wearing like sneakers and streetwear and they use a lot of hip hop in it. And, mm-hmm. and their, their argument, like one of the pastors was saying, like he never refers to the Bible. He only ever says the scriptures because of the connotation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying, like, uh, if people are feeling there, it, it was just so interesting to read the article. And there would be like every other sentence, I would be like, yes. And then I'd be like, oh, no, because <laughs> <laughs> like, one of the arguments that one of the people was making was if people feel a sense of God and hip hop, if this like tells them something true about the world and true about their life and true of their experience of God, then it's relevant. And I agree. I 100 percent agree. Like, yeah, this is a this is, again, another misconception that people have in the Christian tradition that there's this belief that secular, there's no room for the secular in the sacred. And of course that's entirely false. Uh, and there's, or there's this belief that the secular doesn't inform and tell us about the sacred again. entirely. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, again, it depends what church, what theology and, you know, there are plenty very reformed theologies that, uh, you know, will kind of just believe, and emphasize the fallen state of things but then you have sacramental kind of more sacramental more catholic theology right where 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 the whole world is 
uh, radiates with 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 God's beauty, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And in, presence. Even in the way I'm talking, I'm. You can tell that I'm kind of immediately dismissing the the, the former yeah. and, re, and, and 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 talking about the latter. But I think a lot of people don't know that about Catholicism. Surely, people don't yeah. know that the sacramental view of the world is that everything is holy. Um, so you know, as they're as as they're talking about how like hip hop is relevant in in the, in the faith setting because it is a, a way a way in which people touch God. But then, like, in the very next sentence, they would say something like, um, uh, like, that there was that, that context, or, or, like, where it was happening, and the way that it was happening, worship was irrelevant. I see. And, you know, I would argue with that, you know, <laughs> like, I would say, yeah. well, no, it's not irrelevant. Um, it, meaning it's it's also not that it always has to look and be a specific way but but there are traditions that are that that matter and they matter for a reason and like the reason i, I don't know i'm not going to say this right maybe you can use priest language to make it correct but i think you'll know what i'm trying to say because you always do like what makes this the profane sacred what makes the secular sacred, what, what makes it possible to see everything is holy is that there is a container of holiness that when you have the container, you see how everything fits in. But when there's no container, it actually gets really hard to know what's what. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also, you know, like even with, with, with sacraments and especially Eucharist for a lot of people, you know, they experience God that way, you know, they, they encounter God really in a physical form uh, in, in, in that way. And that then enables them to see God when they go outside of the church into the streets, they start recognizing that same presence that they just tasted, right? Outside, present in people and the trees and in the poor and, and et cetera. Yeah, I think we should just specify because there's going to be people who don't know what Eucharist is that we're talking about communion. Yeah, holy the communion. bread and blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there, there is like, I think maybe, I, I think maybe what I'm getting to is, and reading this, uh, it's helping me understand now what was kind of, what I felt really, um, what didn't sit well with me in this article was there was this idea that people come to this place to have this sacred experience, which, you know, is also what I get out of mass sometimes, mm -hmm. not every time. Um, but, but it didn't. And, and I think a lot of people think of church quote, like Americans certainly think of churches that way. It's a place you go to, you do your thing there and then you leave. Is it right? kind of like, you know, and then you encounter Jesus and, and Jesus counts, but everything else, how you get there doesn't matter. Well, yeah. there is, is there. Is yes. that what you're talking about? Well, the, well, that is that's another thing I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is like, we we don't go to these places to encounter God, only. It's like, it's like you go there so that you, so that you encounter God, so that then, as you said, when you are out and about in the world, you recognize him or her or it. Yeah. You know, like it's. It's a, it's a weekly reminder of what it is you're looking for in the world, who it, you know, what it is that you're, it's like, it's like, uh, I think about like a, you know, a pattern. It's yeah. like we have to see the pattern. So then we, so we recognize it everywhere. But if you don't, if you don't check in with the pattern, 
then you're going to forget what it looks like. And then when you're out in the world, it might be right in front of your eyes, but you haven't looked at it. You haven't seen it recently. So you don't recognize it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is, I mean, uh, this is good because also I think that this is what spiritual practice in general is, you know, like within the Anglican tradition, for example, when we look at prayer and all of it really comes from the Benedictine tradition, uh, we look at prayer and we think of it uh, in terms of three things. Number one, you start the day and end the day with prayer, which is part of the liturgy of the hours or the, the daily office. And then there is Eucharist, in which, you know, which happens either on weekly basis or daily basis. And then there is also personal prayer. And all of that is really there to help you to encounter and stay connected to God and rediscover yourself as a part and parcel of the body of Christ. And then from there, you're being sent into the world to do the work of transfiguring the world, right? So mm -hmm. other people can, can get a sense of, uh, of, of, of that connection as well. Yep. Yep. It's not just so you go and have a nice experience. For that, you can go to the Burning Man, right? And, and have an isolated, nice experience that's very creative or whatever, and then go back to the world and do what you used to do. Mass is not about that. You go there to be changed and reminded what your life is about. Yep. Yes, that's it exactly. I guess your, your name is... And it's exactly. not about feeling good, even though feeling good might happen. Well, yeah, it, it will. And you will also feel like absolute, you know, shit on a stick, as I like to say at times. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's what it is. Reading this, I thought these they're creating an experience which is again like this is the language of of all of materialism like it's about creating an experience and i think you can't be... yeah and you know trimperumpache i mean talked about it he wrote a book spiritual materialism and i think it's fair to say that a lot of american spirituality is about spiritual materialism where you engage in 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 practices and gatherings to achieve a specific kind of an experience and then you try to replicate it uh, as often as possible right mm -hmm. yep because that gives you a sense of high that gives you a sense of uh i don't know achievement it helps you to do well uh, in the world oftentimes it makes you more creative and etc i mean you know, one only needs to look at some of the benefits of meditation. Oh, I know. You know oh. when, you, when you get any book on meditation, it's all about that, right? Mm -hmm. To have access to creativity, to be more productive, to, not, to, to know how to deal better with your, with your coworkers. And I mean, again, all of those are nice things and sometimes they could be helpful. But when I look at my spirituality, it's not really about that. It's yeah. about the self. And, and hopefully over time, uh, you know, there will be less and less of Adam with a small a and more and more of God uh, in that, right? Yeah. In how I, mean, I am present in the world. And, and, and again, we're Christians. We're not talking about some kind of disappearing of self. We're talking about the dying of false self. So, uh, so who we truly are in God could, could be present in the world in, in the acts of kindness, caring, and etc. Yeah. I mean, Americans are addicted to success. We want to succeed in everything we do. And I think that is part of what's happened in spirituality is for us, success looks like happiness. Success looks like joy. Success looks like feeling good. 
and you know we want to succeed at our at even our spirituality we want to be good at it we want to win spirituality you know and and if it feels bad then we're not winning and we're not successful but the problem is i mean i think about you know there's a um i don't know if Ang anglicans say it but the i think you do some version of it the, the right the thing we say as the as the eucharist is being consecrated you know like um in German, Herr, ich bin nicht würdig, dass du eingehst unter mein Dach. Um, uh, Lord, I am not worthy that you enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Yeah, so we have a version, a similar version of that, which is the prayer of humble access, uh, which which essentially is, is, is very similar. Yeah, and you've just said, the, this is where I was going with that. It's interesting, it's called that, is that there are people there are there are feminist theologians there are feminist catholics who have a real issue and who with that phrasing of lord i am not worthy but i think that what is missed in that and you know yeah obviously it's it can feel deeply problematic i'm not denying that 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 can you know given the the, the way that women are held in the church blah 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 yes i'm acknowledging all that i'm not just dismissing it but what i think it's easy to miss if you focus on that is that that prayer is an invitation to humility. It's an invitation yeah. to, it's not about, um, it's, it's, a, it's an invitation to face, it's like humility in the face of the false self. It's, 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 I think oftentimes when I say, you know, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I think already I'm in, in, in insisting that the roof is mine, I'm already wrong. And this is what makes it unworthy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. this belief that there, that, that, that it's about, it's about like this sense of ownership of identity that I think we're being invited to, to, to leave behind. But then like the phrase, like, but uh, what is it in English? I was speaking my word. Oh, Wait, I can't have to say the whole thing in English. But but only say the word and my soul shall be healed, right? Like mm -hmm. it's this it's this invitation to humility to abandon the false self, to 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 be humble as in like of the earth, to like become radically rooted to to the dirt. And then in that place of utter humility, which is not um which is not nothingness, but is, you know what I mean? Which is not the way that yeah. we think of, of, it's not, it's not meekness. It's not unworthiness. It's, it's like, it's being one with, with the very dirt. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, that process will break us in this very intense way, but then it only takes one word from God for us to be completely healed and whole again. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, and, you know uh, the, go ahead. Sorry. The, the conclusion of that prayer, uh, you know, in I mean, it's slightly different, uh, and it's quite old, but uh, you know, it, it it ends with you know, so when we when we uh, drink, uh, when we eat, you know, the, the 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 flesh and drink the blood of 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 of. of 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 Jesus that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us, um, and and so there's this sense of like, you know, you're separated. You, all you have to do is just name the separation and 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 all of the things that keep us disconnected, and acknowledge that you know, even if we gather all of that, uh, it's still not going to be enough to 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 be able to 
to, 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 to make it happen on our own. Uh, so let's just acknowledge that and acknowledge the mercy of God and take God in and that will, uh, you know, move our location. And from then on, we will be in him. Yeah. Right. Yes. And what's interesting for someone like for you and me, you, because of our familiarity with various traditions, I I could take 85% of what you just said and say it exactly the same talking to a bunch of meditating yogis and they would be like, yeah, man. Yeah. And that could yeah, change. But, but you well, see the way that I, language. but you see the way that I talked about it, I translated the prayer Yeah. because what the prayer actually says, it says, we do not presume to come to this thy table. I'm using old language, you know, right. a merciful Lord trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the cramps under the table. You know, like people would probably have a reaction to this language. Oh, of course, of course. But, but actually, saying, you know, like if you... Right, right. I'm saying even you talking about being in God or him and Christ, you know, using even words like that would be off-putting. But what I'm saying yeah. is you're, what you're saying is exactly what anybody who is who is truly studying, you know, Kundalini or Sufism or, I mean, any any mystical tradition will be will use the exact same language for yeah for the path but i think people have no clue because what you just said yes you translated a little bit but you were completely you were speaking in christian terms but it was translated but absolute christian terms and i think people have no idea that that is actually that the the exact same that there is there's a thread there's a thread through all mystical traditions that is identical and and so i think that um, but so when I'm going back to our first part of our conversation, when someone asks me to explain how it is I can engage with the Catholic Church, it's like until I can, until you can understand, until I can help someone see or, or clarify or name that there's a there's a thread across all mystical traditions that is identical. Like, and then I feel called to encounter that in the context of the place where I live, of my family's history, of the world that I live in, where I can use my privilege and power to have some effect. It's just very difficult because there's uh, to, to name that because people do not experience Christianity in that way. They don't, they don't see that it exists in it. They don't know that it's there. And they think if you tell them that it's there, that you like, maybe you're one of these like sly LA pastors in your thousand dollar sneakers. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm a little, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical of those guys unfairly, you know, maybe. I mean, it's mainly the sneakers that I'm skeptical. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. there's apparently an Instagram account of like my pastor's thousand dollar sneakers where they were calling out pastors for wearing like thousand dollar sneakers. As a recovering anarchist, I'm definitely skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) No, but then I think, but it's so, I mean, I mean, the other, the other thing we haven't even touched is like the American gospel of prosperity. I mean, that's the, the, that, but that does, we have touched on a little bit. Like that does go into this obsession with success. Like if you're, if you're living in line with God's will, you will also be prosperous in whatever that way that means for you. And if you're not prosperous, then maybe you're not letting, but I mean that the gospel of prosperity does not only exist in Christianity. I think most yogis today are using it. I mean, I think about like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the secret that came out like 10 10 years ago or so the law of attraction. I mean, a lot of it is very similar. Uh, I'm actually pretty convinced that some of the, uh, some of the Christian pastors who, uh, who advocate uh, for uh, the prosperity gospel. It seems like 
some of them almost like took some of those popular books like The Secret and just rewrote them, uh, you know, trying to throw in some Jesus here and there, you know? Well, like Joel Osteen is a perfect example. And yeah. I mean, there is... And there I know is, that you love him. Oh, I love the hell out of that guy. I mean, you know, I mean, for the listeners, that's, this, is a, this is the kind of love that I have for like Kit Kat bars. Like, I love them. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody should eat them. <laughs> I mean, he just he just seems so sweet, right? When he talks, unfortunately, his theology I think is pretty oh, limited, deeply problematic, and it's <laughs> and deeply problematic. Yeah, but he no. just when I look at him, sometimes you know, like I see him on TV, he just seems like such a sweet guy. You know? Well, he yeah, he's he's a complicit white man, is what he is, and yeah. and like he, I think he really believes. I mean, I think he really believes that he's doing a great service. I think he's doing, I think he believes he's doing the Lord's work. He's very charismatic. And like, he basically is just preaching the secret with Jesus thrown in. And, um, and the problem with, I mean, and the, the issue with even, you know, criticizing it is of course, like there's a lot of the secret. There's a lot of what Joel Osteen preaches that is true. You know, it's like there, there's something true in it, but then it's, but then it's, it's taken, it, it is used for the purpose of furthering privilege and power to those that already have it and, you know, denying privilege and power to those that don't, um, you know, it's a very convenient way to like deny all of the social gospel, basically, you know, mm-hmm. like the social justice gospel. So I think... Um, yeah, it's basically a way to have like Christianity without any of the, of the Beatitudes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wasn't the, I think today's, wasn't today's gospel about the first will be last and the last will be first. No. Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, the, the lectionaries sometimes, uh, some of the Sunday lectionaries uh, is sometimes slightly different uh, in the Episcopal Church. Okay. Um, uh, most of the Sundays it's the same, but occasionally uh, it uh, it differs. Um, you know. So um, yeah. But my point being that, like that, that's an easy thing to say, but that's that's diametrically opposed to American society to say oh, yeah. that yeah. you know, <laughs> like that doesn't yeah. that just doesn't jibe. And if and if that's something that you truly believe, like you're gonna either I mean that's you're gonna come up against that and that's not gonna get forty thousand people packed into a former NFL stadium to listen to you every Sunday, you know. Yeah. So and I think ultimately yeah, I mean, Joel Austin's deeply problematic, but you know, I used to, when I had cable back in New York, oh man, you know, I would watch him for hours. I just couldn't, I guess like, I, it was like I couldn't look away. I think he's probably like responsible for, at least partially for your conversion to Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I think he's probably very responsible for the way that I chose to consume Eastern spirituality to feel better. I mean, it was my own version of the prosperity gospel living it out, you know? Yeah. The Dalai Lama said this or that. The Dalai Lama said this or that. Exactly. Okay. I feel like I really wanted to talk to you about the difference between justice and mercy, but that might need to wait for another episode. Yeah, and I don't know that I have much to say about that, except that mercy is... No, no, no. We're talking about it. You have a lot to say about it, and I want to hear it. 
Okay. You gotta pretend like you don't have some, something to say about it. You're always telling me that I don't understand mercy and I understand justice too well. Do I say that? Yeah, I mean, you, you have told me I don't understand mercy flat out. And that I, I, I don't think that I said that. I just, uh, I think what I said was that um, maybe it would be good to emphasize mercy a little bit more. And I probably even used some quotes from Pope Francis in the. Well, I mean, I think you're imagining that you were Father Adam already when we had this conversation, because that's probably how uh, Father Adam would say it. But <laughs> I was talking to Adam Buchko at the time, okay. <laughs> recovering anarchist, interspiritualist. And uh, I think you said that I, that I didn't know what mercy was. <laughs> I don't think I said that. No, and, and I will say in your defense, like, I think it was a valid and useful and helpful point. I mean, I really took it to heart and you definitely did quote Pope Francis. But um, I don't think I said you don't understand mercy. That's I, uh... I mean, you were, you were kind of calling me out on um, being a feminist who was displaying a hyper-masculine trait of obsession over justice in, in, in rather than allowing the, the lens of mercy to have a, have a chance to look at the situation. Some parts of that message sound right, but... <laughs> You're too afraid to agree with me. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> I experienced it as a calling out and, but not, I mean, the way that a good friend is allowed to call you out, it wasn't aggressive. I mean, I think it was really true. I've thought about it a lot. It's had a deep impact on me. I'm still I, I, I know that you have thought about it because we've had actually quite a few conversations about it. I mean, this conversation about justice versus mercy has been going on for a long time between us, maybe even longer than Pope Francis uh, has been a Pope, don't you think? Oh, it's been going on as long as we've known each other, probably not in, in such like clear yeah, and direct not ways. Naming, uh, uh, um, it, justice versus mercy. No, and it definitely pre pre Pope Francis, but but I think what happened was when Pope Francis became Pope, then you had a lot of more you had a lot more leverage and a lot more arsenal to throw my way. Yeah, because you became a Catholic and all of a sudden I, yeah. I I was able to say, You gotta listen to the Pope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't work on me, but sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I think in a way, in a way, our differing, in a way, let me see. Yeah, this will have to be, you'll have to come back and we'll have to talk about this because I think it would also just be beneficial to have this conversation recorded for us to, to go back to in the future. But in a way, we could, I would argue that our key all of the challenges we've had as friends, a lot of our key main arguments, a lot of the ways we've struggled with each other over the years. Has been justice versus mercy. Has right? been justice versus mercy, 100%. Yeah. Yep. Which is very interesting. And I think you are, so I mean, like, yes, the intellectual understanding of it and, you know, the, certainly the theological argument about it, but just like our, the ways that we operate. I mean, you are by nature much you have you are much more in touch with mercy than i am as a person and i am much more justice oriented than i would ever want to admit and um yeah and we and we both probably have some good reasons for that but also some uh, shadowy reasons. some other reasons as well yeah some shadow reasons for sure yeah so yeah i mean will you come back and talk to me about it sure i could unpack it a little yeah, sure. You'll be Father Adam probably by then. Well, God willing. 
Are they going to call you Father Adam or Father Buchko? Please tell me that in this new, at the cathedral, you have introduced yourself pronouncing your name properly. Uh, well. No, please tell me you didn't say out loud bucko to these people. I think I did. Oh, uh, Adam, you've got to retrain them. You can't. The only, the only people who, who tried to call me the way that it's pronounced in Poland was, uh, you know, at, at my seminary in Midwest. And, and that's actually when people call me uh, with the right Polish pronunciation, it's almost kind of weird now because I've been in the States for so long that I, I, I just, I'm just used to it, you know? I know, but it's like part of, you know, I realize why one of the reasons it irritates me so much, not just because it's kind of a silly like Western Nick like way of referring to a city slicker, but like, um, is that there's a part of my heart that breaks when I imagine you as this like immigrant kid in the U S like not speaking the language and you just have to accept because you have no way of explaining to them that that's not how you say your name. And also like you probably don't want to correct them because you know, that's not. Yeah, Cause I'm afraid to open my mouth because every time I do, they tell me that they don't understand what I'm trying to say. And that's deeply embarrassing. Of course. You know? So like, there's this, I feel like there's this part of you that, I mean, you are obviously you speak perfect English for the most part, except you can't pronounce punk properly. You, <laughs> you're, well. you're like, you are fully, I mean, you're, you're an American now. You're a, you're a card carrying American now. Like, there's this, there's part of you though that still doesn't feel comfortable correcting people's pronunciation of your name, and I just it makes me feel so sad because I I just think about that. No, but also boy. my my relationship with my name changed. You know, like I've lived now more than half of my life in the states, and if this is what my name sounds like here, it's fine. I mean, it's. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are other, I'm sure there are American, you know, last names that have some other heritage that we pronounce very American that are equally just, just upsetting to other people. But I just, Butchko is so easy to say and it's so nice. But, but funny, I think that's your issue. I don't think it's my issue. Well, okay. I know, I'm admitting this is my issue, but I just don't want to think about all those nice people at the cathedral calling you bucko. Okay. You don't care, though. You don't care. I don't. But you'll be Father Adam anyway. They call you Father Adam. They will, right? They won't call you Father Bucko. I think Adam is oh, what I'm going for. <laughs> if they start calling you Father Bucko, I might have to stage an intervention. I mean, well, well. I can't handle it. <laughs> you deserve to have your name pronounced properly. Do you know what I think is happening here? I think <laughs> all of my anger about having my name constantly mispronounced is that's what, what is that's that's what, that's what i'm sensing because there's a lot of energy there it kind <laughs> of seems like a lifetime of energy well and because as you know i never correct people when they mispronounce my name ever i know i feel like you haven't corrected me <laughs> i know i don't i just let it go i just answer to anything said in my general direction. see i i pronounce your name in in russian vanya mm-hmm which is actually, it's a boy's name. I know. It's John. It's like John. Is it John now? Yeah, really? yeah, it is. It's John. But you said that your name is Greek, but no, you're no, no. not even Greek. No, my name's not Greek. My name is Russian. It means yeah, God's gracious gift. It's John. My mom knows, knew it was a Russian name. Okay. She's Greek. She, she did it for the meaning, because I was okay. a gift from God, obviously. Wonderful.
Yeah. That's great. But you know, what's interesting is when you're in, when I was in Portugal, everybody said, Oh, you have a Portuguese name. It's a very popular name in Brazil and Portugal. So, I mean, I could say, but I don't, you're right. I don't correct people how to pronounce my name. Obviously I'm feeling some big feelings about it. And so I'm taking them all out on you, but I do think that father Buchko is better than father Bucko. I mean, we're all entitled to our opinions. You know what? I hope some fine folks from the cathedral listen to this episode and then make the correction. And then without you having to do anything, you are suddenly Adam Buchko, which is what you deserve to be because it's a fine last name. (laughs) Okay. 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 I think this is a good place to end. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you want to say, Father Buchko? Not yet, Father Buchko. Almost. No, more. I think I, I I think you know I, I feel pretty complete. You feel complete. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I hate that language. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There you have it. Episode six. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, share with your friends. Send it to someone you know. Like us on Instagram. Send me an email. Send me a voice memo. Let me know what you think. And uh, talk to you soon. Bye.